0: So if you would, turn in your Bibles, please. Take your notebooks if you like. Uh, It's good to have a Bible and a notebook for you. Notes specifically for the passage under consideration. The Bible to see everything else that surrounds it and and feeds into it. We're going to turn open to Ephesians 3, if you would. Look at a couple of things. Get our bearings back with us. We've been out of Ephesians for a little while. You're jumping back into it and moving full steam ahead. And just uh, quickly to get us up and running. Maybe it's been a little bit. Maybe you've missed some of the beginning of this. Uh, we have everything chronicled online that you can go back and listen to whatever you need might be fuzzy with. And if you have any questions, especially on the back of your uh, on the back of your bulletin, just pull it up. My email address is back there. Feel free to send me something. We can get together. I'll let you buy me coffee. The whole thing. So, an overview of Ephesians. Ephesians is divided into two sections. The first section is doctrine. Don't let doctrine scare you. It just means truth. Okay first section is doctrine, that's chapters 1, 2, and 3. The second section is practice, how you live your life. If we don't know how to think, we won't ever live in agreement with how we should think. Or let me say it this way, if we don't ever have the convictions in place, the convictions can never be lived out. If we want to live right, we got to think right. Right living comes from right thinking, so that has to happen. In chapter 1, we talked about all the glorious privileges that a believer has In Christ. In chapter 2, we talked about the glorious position that we have in Christ. In chapter 3, we talked about God's glorious plan. And all of this has to do with the doctrine or the wealth that we have in Christ. Now, before I get turned too loose, let's take a moment and let's pray. I feel like that really needs to happen. Lord God, we just come to you with your word open, desiring to be taught by the Spirit. Lord, bring our minds to a place of submission to you, our hearts in a place of submission to you. And Father, we know that you're doing a conforming work in us, more into the image of your Son, uh, with whittling and polishing and whatever it takes to bring us where we need to be in our walks with you. So Lord, use your word now, and the Spirit now is the tool uh, to draw us closer to your presence. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look in chapter 3 of Ephesians, there's a very profound section here that kind of sums up the big idea. What is God doing? Sometimes we ask that question. What in the world is God doing? Was history even here? In chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10, look what it says. To me, that's Paul, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Now that's not just the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. That's very much the entry point of that. But it's the abundance of blessing that is located in Christ. So when you hear the gospel and you believe, the spiritual U-Haul backs up, grabs you, and drives you to a brand new location and sets you up in Christ. That's now your permanent residence of which you can never be Removed and all riches, blessing, and glory, and honor, and everything is found in Christ alone. That's where every believer is. It says here, and to bring to light, which means previously it was in darkness. What is the administration? What's that word? Administration. The dispensation. What does dispensation means? It means a stewardship. It's the idea of God entrusting to humanity a responsibility and asking the question, how'd you do with that? That's what a dispensation, generally speaking, is. We have 10 sermons on that. You can go back and check it out. So the dispensation of the mystery. Now, this is a trivia quiz. What is a mystery in scripture? Don't think Scooby-Doo. Don't think Columbo or Perry Mason. What is it? something that is true but it's not yet been revealed. It's been there but it's kind of waiting on deck. It's the guy in the batter's box waiting to be called up or in the in the in the little practice thing waiting to be called up into the batter's box so that they can finally get the show on the road. That's the idea. So this is something that in the Old Testament not known. No one knew about this at all in the Old Testament. And with Paul coming to faith in Christ, it's now time to begin unfolding this and progressing what God has shown us. So of the mystery, which for ages, Old Testament, has been hidden in God who created all things. Why? What was the reason that it's now coming to light? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now, is that showing up very well? It is. It's okay. We're moving on to to blue slides. It's okay. Might now be made known through the who? Oh, I heard you. I'm just letting you know who that is. That's me and y'all. It's all y'all. Everybody who is a believer in Christ right now, God is preaching something through every one of us to the unseen. In fact, look what it says. To the church, to the rulers, that is a celestial ranking of being. It's kind of like corporal, major, general, those types of things. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And does that include the demonic? Absolutely. God is preaching a message about his profound grace being exercised amongst the creatures of his creation at an appointed time of which he's reserved for the moment when Paul came on the scene to unfold the idea of the church because he wants to tell them, you cannot win. That's the idea. It's a victory cry in what God can do in placing his very spirit within believers. So this whole thing, we're not, I just go to church. Stop going to church and start being the church. We are the church. This building is a church building, but it is not the church. We've got to start recognizing that the way we've been sold church in American Christianity is not true to the scriptures. The idea is we are a community of blood-bought people who are in christ and under the blood of christ with the indwelling holy spirit and we are to be demonstrating the manifold riches of god by his grace to this sin sick world that is the way that people get saved we have a message worth preaching we have a savior that is worth extolling to every single person that we come in contact with it is all about jesus all the time period So we've been given this incredible privilege at a time in history of which is unparalleled. No one else has ever had this. And that's why this time cannot be wasted. And today we're going to talk about different ways that we can make sure we're not wasting this time because of the privilege we've been given. So then we've stepped into Ephesians chapter four. Right now we're talking about our glorious practice. Next week we will end the glorious practice section and we will branch into a glorious prescription. Here are some things that we ought to be doing within the community, the assembly, in Christ, the church. And at the end, we will be dealing with the glorious protection that he has provided us. All of that deals with our walk. Now, pay attention to how it's set up, because it's not a mistake. Paul wants wants to let us know the lofty weight of all that he's done for us in Christ, so that it serves to motivate us and push us forward in obedience for Christ. Does that make sense? Because of our unconditional already acceptance, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, He's now asking us to live a profound life that you could never live before. You never before Jesus had the opportunity to do the things that you can now do because Christ has made it possible and you are in Him. So now, back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's get a running start here. Therefore, because of all these wonderful, cool doctrinal things that are in place, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with what you have been called. Now, if you saw this before, this graphic won't hurt you a bit, but this is the idea of what it is to walk worthy is to balance out the scales. If you understand from chapters one, two, and three, the position and the wealth that you have in Christ, you don't have anything to earn. Why? Because you already have everything given to you in him. Now, if I'm dwelling on the fact that I have every spiritual blessing in Christ and I'm seated with him in the heavenly places, the fact that he's predestined me to exercise love amongst people, the fact that I now have the very righteousness of Christ in my stead, the fact that I've been sealed like the greatest Ziploc bag you've ever seen in your life with the Holy Spirit of promise, and that is a guarantee that he will come back and redeem me off of this earth. All of a sudden, everything that I'm depressed and sad about goes out the window because I'm no longer thinking in terms of this earthly life only I'm starting to think according to the terms of the heavenly life that has already been delivered to me freely Now that's beautiful why no one say it amen you guys probably need to repent That's good stuff and what that does is this is the fuel that makes me say I've got to live differently I've got to answer differently. I need to start thinking differently. Why? Because everything that happened on this side has made me a different person. And what Paul is saying is how weighty and lofty and great this is. Live in the light of that truth in such a way as to where you want to try to balance the scales. Not that you're trying to pay God back. That's impossible. You can never do that. It's the fact that the abundance of grace of which you have, live that grace. Live it. We get to. Do I have to be obedient? No, you get to be obedient. You can be a sinful curmudgeon all the rest of your life if you want to. Crusty Christians don't bring anybody to Christ. Try saying that five times fast. Good grief. Now, he moves on here. Notice that he gives us some attitudes to do this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, real tolerance, for one another, in love, being diligent striving is the idea. Grabbing a rope and pulling with all your might to get it and win the tug-of-war contest. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So notice, sevenfold qualities of which we need to be after they constitute what a worthy walk is and all grace gives way to these types of attitudes. Now, he then draws our attention to the fact of the attitude that we need to have All is because of a unity that we share. There's one body, that's the body of Christ. There's one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, spirit baptism, not water baptism. That's very important to understand. One God and Father of all who's over all and through all And in all, everything about God and all that he's done is unified without taint, without crack, without fracture, without loss. It's all perfectly one. So that should be our motivation to strive for unity in here. So let's sum this up real quick. The spiritual already unity of the body of Christ, meaning that it's all a done deal. It's all done. Jesus has already taken care of all of it is the context in which, A, our striving for practical unity rests. Why should I seek to be tolerant of you in love? And I'm so thankful that every Sunday you are tolerant of me in love, regardless of how long I go on preaching. Is the idea, why should you do that? Because everything in Christ is unified. We should be striving to make a reality, practically, what is already a reality, positionally. Jesus has already done it and made it all one. So why should we not strive to maintain that type of oneness and have it displayed for the world to see? We should fall in line with what Christ has already done. But number two, our diverse giftedness is to operate in a oneness. Now, you will remember this, and I think we did 46 sermons on spiritual gifts, okay? Notice what he says next in verse 7. He says here, But to each one of us, notice he was talking about unity of the whole, and now he goes into individuals. Each one of us who are believers, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure, how you would measure that out and quantify that, of Christ's gift. What in the world is that? Just real quick, if you want to jot these down in your margin, notice that the way that we designed this here was you've got the scripture here with enough room to mark in the text, and you got tons of lines here of which you can do that. So if you want to do that, fantastic. Please do that. Acts chapter one, verses four and five. After he's resurrected, he's getting ready to ascend to heaven, and here's what Jesus tells his disciples. He gathered, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the father had promised, which he said to you, you heard of from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. We need a darker color. Didn't know it erased, did you? That's good. Ah! For the common good. What is the gift that's brought up here in seven, but to each one of us, grace? Notice us, Paul includes himself. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It's the Holy Spirit. Why is that? The measure of grace it's given is spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts of which to exercise. Now, you might remember these. These are spiritual gifts inventories. These are studies that were put together by a PhD team at Western Baptist Conservative Theological Seminary, probably six other words attached to that, in Portland, Oregon back in the 70s, okay? Before everybody there went woke, it was actually doing good stuff, okay? And in doing that, is put together an explanation of spiritual gifts, why they're so important, what the spiritual gifts are, and then gives you statements and shows you how to mark of whether or not you might have certain spiritual gifts. Accompanied with that is an answer key that you log your answers and will help give you some indication of what your spiritual gift is. Now, this is not foolproof, it's just helpful. Full proof is I've been getting involved in ministry in the church and I found that the Lord is really doing this through me. Great. The spirit is using the gift that he's blessed you with in order to benefit the body of Christ. Everybody has a spiritual gift. Not one Christian has been left behind whatsoever. Everybody has that. So we've made these available and they're all out there on the Welcome Center. If you would like to take one and get it, if for some reason you go out there, you don't have one or you haven't done this for some reason, you should do this because every Christian needs to have some sort of understanding of what their spiritual gift is. So when we talk about this, the gift of the Spirit is the fact that He has endowed believers in Christ in their unified form to be loving and exercising some spiritual means with one another, and He does that through certain gifting. Now, real quick, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Notice what it says. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the... Spirit, I'm going to have to get some participation. I'm scared about you guys falling asleep, so here we go. And to another, the word of knowledge according to the same? Okay, good. To another, faith by the same? Okay. And to another, gifts of healing by the one? Yes. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But... One and the same works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills the Spirit. You have the spiritual gift that you have because Jesus secured it for you. We're going to see that in a second. But he gave it to you through the Spirit. And the Spirit said, Zach gets this one. Amy gets this one. Why am I blanking on your name, Sherry? Good grief. Sherry gets this one. Brian gets this one. I looked right at her and thought I should know you. But anyway, what in the world? And so in our study, we found this. There are 11 gifts in the church. And if you will notice, preaching, exhortation, teaching, wisdom, and knowledge are all speaking gifts. And then discernment, leading, helps, mercy, giving, and faith are all service gifts, and they all work just like a divinely planned zipper in order to benefit the body of Christ. Now, this message is not about spiritual gifts, but this is exactly what Paul is referring to in chapter 4, verse 7 of Ephesians. So if you want more information about this, again, we have 40-something lessons online that you can listen to about this. We really tried to handle it thoroughly we really tried to implement this with our teams of asking the question who has what spiritual gift on your team of ministry and where are you lacking certain people with spiritual gifts let me give you an example of this i am not an administrative person at all that's okay my gifts are teaching and preaching whoever said amen shame on you that's (laughs) awful roxanne you're leading the mission team man good gravy. Lord, have mercy on your soul. Exactly. But here's the thing. I can either act like I have it all going on and the gifts that I don't have, I can operate in the flesh that goes nowhere with the Lord. The Lord will not do anything spiritual or divine. You will never see the glimpse of the Holy Spirit working through the body of Christ if I'm trying to do something of the flesh. And that's the same for you. So what did we do? We recognize somebody who has an administrative gift, and we're now getting ready to bring Rory on so that he can administrate. Why? Because that's his gift. It's not my gift. What we don't do is we say, I need everybody that's just like me and let's stack all of our gifts up together. No, that's how you fight with one another. That's like putting Christians around a monopoly board. You just don't do it. (laughs) You just don't. But what we do is we say, I have these gifts. What people can we put around us that have gifts that are not mine? That's how you create a team. That's how you create people. That's why the Lord brings people to the body of Christ to complement one another and fill in the holes. Why? So that we get the full exercise of his spirit. Only Jesus had all 11 spiritual gifts, okay? So notice, back to chapter four, verse seven. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we're getting ready to get in deep waters. Everybody put your snow pants on. Here we go. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on earth, high. He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, if you're someone who has this booklet and you're marking through there, I want to give you some things real quick. Number one, this word is important. The idea of ascension and thinking about that because you're going to see it pop up again and again. It's going to tie it all together. So when he ascended on high, okay, that happened in a moment. Something took place. He led captive a host of captives. And he, and you want to pay attention here, he gave gifts to men. Now, having said that, everybody take your Bibles. Turn with me if you would. Put a, put a, a something here you know you want to take notes if you if you want all that that's great but put something there in Ephesians 4 and turn with me please to Psalm 68 because that is exactly where he is quoting from and the question is why does Paul bring this Old Testament quote into this moment where he's talking about the idea of spiritual gifts and the ascension of Christ the unity that we should have but the diversity that is welcome by a gift of the Spirit within the body of Christ. Why is he talking about all this stuff? And why does he bring in this strange text from the other side? What's interesting is is Psalm 68 is a victory psalm. It's all about how God is triumphant. You're looking for your heart to become tender and follow ground for good seeds to be planted and to grow in your worship. Psalm 68 is a great place because it just talks about the greatness of God and what he's looking to do. But we need to understand a little bit of what's going down here, okay? So everybody look at chapter 68, starting in verse 15. I've got it marked here. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. Now, there's some translation strangeness going on here. Hebrew is an incredibly complex language. And I think it was the 13th century maybe that they brought it in. They didn't even have vowels in their language, until somebody brought in the 13th century to help with translation. It's all consonants. And so there's some strangeness that goes on here about how to interpret some things. We have a class here on Wednesday mornings. It is Introduction to Hebrew. Lori, what are you doing? Okay. Just make sure you weren't tackling me. We don't have security up here. I don't like what you're saying. Okay. That's just evidence. Okay. Okay. There's an idea here that's placing this with the mountain of God and the mountain of Bashan, and they're actually kind of pitted against one another. Now, just because translation, it's not popping out, you can tell from the context. Look what it says. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, oh, mountains with many peaks? Pause. Everybody turn on your Mortimer uh hats or whatever and put together the idea a mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Yes? Okay, old mountain with many peaks, what is that? Bashan, okay, so we got that. Now, here's what's interesting about this. I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna flip back so you guys can see it. Bashan's right here. Everybody see this little region up here? Ammon, Gilead, Bashan. That's the Sea of Galilee right there, Jordan River running down into the Dead Sea, Jerusalem's over there. You get kind of what the layout of this idea is, Okay. Bashan is also known as, hold on just a second here. Bashan is also known as Mount Hermon. Is anybody familiar with Mount Hermon? Okay, so Bashan has some other names that go on in Scripture. Stick with me, I'm going to try to pull it all together for you. I was really worried about this sermon, and then I got real excited about it. And usually when I'm excited, you guys hate it. So moving on here. Mount Hermon, what we know this today as, this will get your attention the Golan Heights. So when we talk about the Golan Heights and all the controversy that goes on over in the Middle East, pay attention. Get this. Israel is the center of of the universe. Make no mistake about that. And the center of all of that is Jerusalem. And the center of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. That's the way God has set it up. He has say so, I don't. But that's why we pay attention to the things that are going on in the Middle East and try to filter through some of the lies that we hear. Well, it's also the Golan Heights. Notice a mountain of many peaks is the mountains of Bashan. Now pause. If you just had to stop for a second and think, what is the mountain of God? It's not Bashan. What is the mountain of God? Zion. Exactly. This is how we should understand this in the text. Zion is God's mountain. But the mountain of Bashan is something different from that. And what's interesting is, is Bashan may have many peaks. Now, why would that be important? Because in Old Testament pagan worship, if you had many peaks and it was a tall mountain, you wanted to climb up there and erect an altar to a false god and worship demons on that. That's what they did all throughout the Old Testament in that area. It says here, why do you look with envy? You know what that means? Mount Bashan is mad that they're not the mountain of Zion. Why? Because they got many peaks. We are the coolest mountain around. God should want to be on our mountain. He should claim us for himself. So he's almost giving this wordplay, this metaphor here, the idea of there's a fight, there's a royal rumble going on. At the mountain which God has, de- uh, uh, let's see here. Why do you look with envy? Oh, mountains of the peaks, it's Bashan. At the mountain which God has desired for his abode. That's Zion. Surely the Lord, surely Yahweh will dwell there forever. Yes. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Does everybody remember the Sinai incident? Everybody gets called out of there. Egypt is fallen. Pharaoh and his chariots, they're all cast away in the sea. And they come and they gather around. And they hear the voice of God giving them the ten words, the ten commandments. They hear him audibly speaking there. It scares them to death. Moses, don't ever let God talk to us again. You talk to us from now on. We'll listen to you. You talk to God. We're going to set up a telephone game here kind of thing going on. They were scared to death of that. So just as it was at Sinai where people were gathered around, the same way it will be at Zion. Now, again, it's located up here. Mount Hermon is up here. Why is this significant of what we're seeing before we get into the rest of the verse? Here's the reason why. There's an incident that happens in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is talking with his disciples. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Some of you might remember this lesson. When Jesus spoke this, he was at this mount. He was exactly there at the Golan Heights. He was at Mount Hermon at the base of it. And when he spoke this, the reason was, is because Mount Hermon was believed to be the gateway to hell. It's considered a doorway. In fact, today, if you were to go there, there is a massive cave that goes back into all of that, that is a idol center, worship, cultic place to the god Pan. Everybody know Pan, right? From the waist up, looks like a a cherub or a a little boy or whatever from the waist down, looks like a goat, plays a little flute kind of thing going on. Everybody remember this? Pan. Pan. Okay, they worship Pan there and they'll actually make sacrifices and they'll toss it into this hole down there. What's interesting about this is back in biblical times, this was where the chief deity Molech rested. Molech was this big ox looking being that had hands that were outstretched and the body was hollow so that they could heat it up burning hot. And because they were under pagan worship, worshiping demons, they were led astray to take all their children and to put them on those burning hot hands of Molech so that they would burn to death as a sacrifice to these false gods. And in doing so, they would beat drums and they would sound trumpets in order to drown out the screams of the child. That's how messed up this place is. This is what went on there. There's a whole history of things that took place there. Um, In Jewish theology, they actually hold that that was the meeting place on Mount Hermon, the Mount of Bashan, the Golan Heights, where the sons of God got together, the Nephilim, the offspring of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, and they plotted this overtake of the world because Satan was trying to corrupt the hereditary seeds that would bring about the Messiah. Our Bibles are cool, man. Okay? So this is considered in Jewish folklore, in Jewish theology, a place where all of this horrible stuff went down. In fact, it was later on known, uh, everybody remember whenever the kingdom split, whenever Solomon disobeyed God and said, I will take the kingdom from your son, you'll have two tribes down south, ten tribes will be up north. Well, his son did not want them, or sorry, not his son, his son was ruling the bottom His enemy, Jeroboam, who was ruling the top, did not want them traveling to Jerusalem for sacrifices. So what did he do? He set up an altar in Bethel. He set up an altar in Dan. And when he did that, he said, you want to worship? You go to one of these two places. Don't go down to Jerusalem. We'll make worshiping God convenient for you. You actually find out that he sinned against God in a major way and he ended up paying for it in his kingdom ever since then. So this place is ridiculed. That place up in Dan, Mount Hermon, Golan Heights, Bashan, it's the exact same place the exact same place. So there's a lot of terrible things that have gone out. So when he says here, the gates of Hades will not do that, he is standing at the mountain. He's standing there making this point. He's probably pointing to it whenever he tells them. They knew what was going on there. So when you go back to Psalm 68, it quotes our verse. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, now we're going to come back to that, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, this part, not quoted, okay? So we don't have to worry about that. But the problem is, is in the Old Testament, it says that he received gifts. When Paul decides to quote it in the New Testament, he says he gave gifts gifts. Let's go back and take a look at it. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What is this talking about? In Psalm 68, it's talking about when God brings the influx of this kingdom and everything that is evil, satanic, demonic, all of this, he is going to arrest it. And he is going to lead them off for judgment. And he is going to establish himself as the divine victor over the entire earth. Now, what's interesting about that is when he binds them, when he sets them aside during that time, it was customary for a warrior, a victor, to come in and say, and all your stuff is mine. That's how you dominated somebody. They weren't dropping humanitarian aid to anybody. They were killing everybody that was able-bodied to fight, and then they're taking all their stuff. Your corn is mine. Your checkers are mine. Whatever. They didn't care. They kept it all. In doing so, it was then the warrior's ability and choice to turn around and bless the people of which he has secured victory for with the spoils of war. The difference between receiving gifts and giving gifts can be harmonized. The one who receives gifts is also positioned to give gifts as he shares the spoils of victory with his people. In this case, Jesus shares gifted men, we're going to get to that next week, as an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, me, (laughs) teacher, me, okay, with his church. There you go. Now, pause for just a second before we move forward. There's no discrepancy, if not for any one reason. And that's the fact that the same Holy Spirit that inspired the Old Testament inspired the New Testament. And if he led Paul to change that word in order to talk about the way that the spoils of what Christ had done on the cross and at his ascension when you ascended, yes, everybody remember that? So his ascension plays a big deal here. Why is that? Well, if you will think back to the death of Christ, incredibly important, the resurrection of Christ, death could not hold him. And then you're in this situation where, okay, he's on earth for 40 days, And then he ascends, and while he was on earth for 40 days, he would constantly appear to his disciples, and he was teaching them, Acts chapter 1 tells us this, during that time about the kingdom of God. He is setting forward for them what the ultimate goal in the future is going to look like in order to motivate them to faithful ministry in the time between his resurrection and ascension. So while he's doing that, something happens at his ascension that never happened before. Number one, he becomes the great high priest of the church. Do you realize that we never had a great high priest? We never had one. But because he had perfectly found a sacrifice, the sacrifice is himself. Remember guys, this isn't just a cross, it's a what, do we know? It's an altar. This is an altar before God of which the spotless blood of the Lamb of God was laid upon there. Why did God resurrect him from the dead? He raises him from the dead and makes him a great high priest. Why? Because now there's a worthy sacrifice of his blood to bring into God's temple and offer for the sins of the world. All this stuff we see about tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, I know you get to like Exodus chapter 32 and you're like, my Bible reading plan is out the window. I understand that. Because some people can't endure with it. Why do I need to know this? Why do I need to know that the curtain rods were only this long? Because it is all an exact replica of realities that are already in place in heaven. God is trying to show us in an earthly way how he already operates. So he raises Jesus as his faithful great high priest who now can take the sacrifice of his own perfect blood and perfectly atone for sin so that no sacrifice ever has to be given again. He could not do that if he didn't ascend unto the Father to do it. Another interesting thing is when he ascends, he is now in position to become the head of the church. Isn't it interesting that while the apostles are trying to ask him questions and stuff, he just gone. We kind of do that to our kids, don't we? Hey, Dad, do you kind of, you know, that this? You know, just like get out of the way. They keep talking, they keep going. What's the exact same way with this? He goes up, and after that, what happens in the next chapter? What happens in the next chapter in Acts? Acts chapter 2. What comes? The Holy Spirit comes upon it and the church is born. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and the church is born. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ, now has a head in place of which to operate it. He is now ascended and he now becomes the head of the church. How do we know that? Because in the Old Testament there was never a church. It wasn't even thought of, it wasn't even spoken of in the Old Testament. You don't even get an inkling of it until you come across Matthew when Jesus brings it up a couple of times. But now he's in position to be the head of our church. And this is when this brand new thing happens. So he's turned around and he's given gifts to us because of the spoils of war for not just dying for sin, defeating death, defeating hell, defeating the grave. He defeated all of that stuff. And as the victor, He is now in a situation where he can say, and you get this gift, and you get this gift, and you get that, why? Because he wants people under his blood in Christ operating in a spiritual way. Now, we move on to verses nine and 10. Now, the expression he ascended, notice that Paul even brings this up because he wants to make sure we get it. He ascended, what does it mean? Except, and you're like, yeah, what in the world is going on? What does it mean? Except that he also had descended. So he had to come down before he could ever go up. Yes. Okay, great. Making sure we know into the lower parts of the earth. This has caused some problems and some confusion. We're going to address this in just a second. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. Now notice ascended here, ascended here. Good grief. Why do you do that? Stop it. Microsoft Surface, good grief. Far above all the heavens, reason. So that he might fill all things. And I had this written down because I knew I wouldn't remember. The reconciliation of people and his creation cannot happen without the Messiah being in position to make it so. So the reason why he ascends into this position far above the heavens, and notice we're talking about the ascension, is because he cannot reconcile all of creation to God if he is not in position to do so. Now, real quick, when Christ ascended, where did he ascend to? Where's he at right now? We see it all throughout the New Testament. The right hand of the Father. And we have many people today who say, no, Christ is on the throne. He's not. He's beside the throne. Well, you're talking bad about Jesus. No, I'm trying to tell you what the Bible says. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he's over in the warm-up circle waiting to get in the batter's box. And this is the whole point about the return of Christ when he comes. What does he do? The father steps out of the batter's box and says, son, get in there and swing. And I love it. I read this, to just real quick story, I'm sorry. We got time. (laughs) I explained to Nathaniel about the end of the world yesterday and how it was all going to happen. The rapture, judgment seat of Christ, Tribulation, what it's going to look like? The Antichrist, the false prophet. I'm drawing little stick figures. He's like, they look weird. I was like, they are weird, son. You know. So, and and then Christ comes back, and I read to him the verse in Revelation 19, that when they see the one coming through the clouds at them, they all turn to attack him. And Nathaniel went, ha, 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 ha. and I said, why is that funny? He goes, are they trying to attack Jesus? I said, yeah. These are the stupidest people in Scripture. You see the Savior rip through the sky and you're going to turn a gun on him? What is wrong with you? Obviously, unbelief-itis. I don't know. It's really bad. But anyway, he ascends far above so that he might fill all of these things so that he can bring all things to a completion back in the way that they always should have been as God started them. Now, let's take our Bibles, if we can, please, and turn to First Peter to the right. This has been a passage, Tabitha and I were having a discussion earlier this week about this. Isn't this a situation where this happens? And it's worth noting because so many people associate this passage with it. First Peter chapter three, we're going to start verse 17. The context of this passage is Christians are going to suffer. It's going to happen. And so Peter is saying, how do you suffer well? How do you remain faithful to the Lord? What should your attitude be? When people come across you, ridicule you, rail you, beat you, steal your stuff, whatever it is, how should you handle that? And notice what he says here, for it is better if God should will it so. And for some of us, God may will it so. And we need to trust that. And that's hard to do that. You suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Now you want to talk about somebody who unjustly suffered. The son of God who never sinned suffered most. So if that's what happened to him, and we are not as righteous as he is, practically speaking, yet we want to live faithfully for him, we should expect a degree of suffering as well. Notice it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all. Notice he died once for all. It's not a repeated death of Christ. The just that's him, for the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. There's that reconciliation. Having been put to death in the flesh, now notice that, that's his body, but made alive in the spirit. Now what does that point to? No? Resurrection. Resurrection. Made alive in the spirit. Not saying that his spirit wasn't alive beforehand, but the idea is he was actually crucified. He actually died. It's not the swoon theory. He just kind of passed out, waited until the guards were gone, and then he got up in his weakened state and pushed the rock out of the way. Don't buy all that. Those are people who don't believe that Jesus is God. They're trying to make up stories. So, but it was made alive in his spirit. Here's the resurrection. Death, resurrection. Watch this. This is the hardest passage in the entire Bible to interpret you'd be amazed. We don't we don't begin to understand and have a clue what it means. So I'll go ahead and tell you. I am trying to come to this using the best of what I know how. And all the studying I did this week was probably about three days worth on just this section to try to understand what exactly is going on. So notice, he's made alive in the spirit in which, okay, this is his spirit of which he was listed as made alive. And I take that to mean Resurrection, okay? He also, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, chained up, who once were disobedient. Notice this is past. When, ah, timing. There's your timing on this. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Guess where we are now? Genesis. Everybody see that? There's something that took place in Genesis of which God was being very patient during Noah's time of which the spirits in prison were a direct result in a negative consequence of whatever happened during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, persons—it's Noah and his family, were brought safely through water. What in the world is this? When the sons of God, these are celestial beings that aren't necessarily angels. Satan would be considered one of them, but there's many more of them as well. They looked upon the daughters of men, the human creations of God, being women, and they found them incredibly attractive. And it says they all went and took each to a wife as themselves as they sought fit. And by procreating in that way, they came up with something called the Nephilim. And people can't exactly place what in the world this is, but it seems to have the idea of incredible height incredible strength. They're known as mighty men of renown, but there's some sort of genetic problem that came in and created a distortion of the human race. Now pause for just a second. Why in the world would that go on? Because Satan knows the judgment that has been pronounced on him. Everybody remember the woman's seed? We talked about this on Christmas Eve. Everybody remember this? It's the seed of the woman that will crush your head, Satan. The seed of the woman. What does that tell you? Reproduction. So if reproduction is going to happen and Jesus, or sorry, Satan is not thinking virgin birth. We all weren't until it actually happened. You know, he's not thinking on that. So what's he trying to do? Let's distort the gene pool and this great deliverer will never crush my head and I will win and I will beat God. So he brings in the situation to mess up the genes and to mess everything up hereditary wise. And this is why Noah was found not to just be righteous, but pure in God's sight. His line was untainted. And that's why God used him to bring further creation through the race that ended up being Jesus. Now, the idea is, is that when Jesus died, he went down into hell and he preached to the spirits down there who were these rebellious angels. It doesn't even call them angels. It calls them spirits. The spirits. And every time this is used in the New Testament, it points to the idea of demonic spirits. So these demonic spirits that cohabitated with these women, they're down there in prison. In fact, if you look at Peter, Second uh, Peter chapter, hold on. To, verses four and five, they use the word hell there. But if you research that well, pull out literal uh, the word hell, pull out literal word, put your finger on it in, in, uh, in, the, in the app. It actually is a word that's not used anywhere else in scripture, Tartarus. And it is a place where it's considered the deepest depths of hell. It's a place where the most heinous offenders are kept. There are rankings in hell, just like there are rankings in heaven, absolutely. So in doing that, these spirits are now down there. When Jesus died in those three days of absence on the earth, he went down and he preached to them. What did he preach to them? Some people said he tried to share the gospel with them so they'd get saved. There's two problems with that. After you die, you can't come to faith in Christ. And number two, Jesus didn't die for spirit beings anyway. He died for people. So that doesn't float any water, okay? Some people said he came and he said, Ha ha! I don't believe that because Jesus isn't really showboat about all of his stuff. Okay? What I do think that possibly happened, because I'm not denying it happened, the scripture says that he went down there and he did this. We don't know what he said. There's no qualifier for what he said. But the idea is, is he probably went down there and said, Satan tried to get you to distort the race. I wanted to let you know, I am the seed that's crushing his head. I think he wants to say, prophecy has been fulfilled. You tried what you could, you can't defeat God. It was probably a cry of victory in that way. I don't think it was a showboat thing. I don't think he shared the gospel with them. So we know what happened. The question is, is when did it happen? What's that? It's the idea of the mystery finally being revealed. They wouldn't have known this in Genesis 6, so Jesus is really filling in. Maybe he had a history class while he was down there to tell them what happened while they were down there. I don't know. But anyway, moving forward, we know that it couldn't have happened when he died. We know that he couldn't have descended into hell when he died. How is that? Well, Luke chapter 23. Turn there with me real quick. We're not going to come back to the first Peter part. I can just show it to you. But there's some very important things that are said by Jesus here that we need to take note of. Luke chapter 23. I hope you came to study your Bible today. This is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. Luke 23. He's got got criminals on either side of him. One is railing and ridiculing him. The other one is recognizing what's going on and he makes some interesting claims. And he says, this guy didn't do anything wrong. We're getting what we deserve. This guy is unjustly dying here. And notice, Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Does everybody remember that? Now notice this. Just stop for a second and critically think, what did this criminal know about Jesus? Jesus. If you're associating it with the idea of a kingdom, and the kingdom we have to think of in a Jewish way, why? Because all the Old Testament points to that way. He understands, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God who is supposed to become the king. And so he says, "If this is, he did not, you notice he's not trying to make a rationale of his death here. But he says, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Now watch how Jesus responds. He said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Paradise and the kingdom are not the same. The man understands. He's got an Old Testament theology about what should be happening with the coming of the kingdom for the Jews. He gets that. But what's interesting is Jesus doesn't go there. He doesn't take time to correct him on the cross. That would have been odd. Actually, your theology's off. Here's what we're really doing. He wouldn't have done that. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Pause. When Jesus died, where did he go? Paradise. Did this guy go with him? Absolutely. So when he died, that's where he went. Now, if you go down through there and you look just a few more verses down and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands, please take my spirit to hell so I can preach to the spirits in prison. Is that what he says? No, into your hands, now that's an upward way, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So where did he go when he died? Heaven. To be right before the Father? And guess what? He took criminal guy with him. Why? Because he recognized who he was, and ha-ha, he didn't have time to get baptized before they left, recognize this, okay? That argument's always a fun one in Lutheran country. Didn't have time for it. Went straight up because he believed Jesus promised him and he said, "This is where I'm going, you will go with me." So he couldn't have gone down to the spirits in prison. Why am I bringing all this up? Because this is often attached with the idea of descending and ascending. What does that mean? When he descended to the lower parts of the earth, he came to earth. Where did he come from? He came from the Father to earth to live among us to experience life as we experience so that he can perfectly sympathize with us as our great high priest. This is exactly what Hebrews 4 tells us. When you struggle, he struggles and he knows that struggle. Why? Because he's been there in human fleshly form. He understands the struggle. He gets what it is to be marginalized and hated and torn down. He gets what it is to be ridiculed. When you're experiencing joy and you celebrate and you say, thank you, Jesus, guess what? He gets that emotion too. Why? Because God perfectly made himself a person to experience everything that you and I experienced so he would know exactly how to identify with us. So when he ascended and the power of his ascension and going up, he is far above all of these other names. And what does he do? By dying, defeating death by raising, offering his blood, everything that I have stolen from the enemy, I'm now giving to my body. Here are all the gifts that I'm going to give to you. We'll talk about that. So here's the question. If you go back to Ephesians chapter four, thank you guys for bearing with me. Again, I'm really excited about it. I'm not so sure about you guys, but I hope you are. Ephesians chapter four. And I know I'm talking fast. I apologize. I'm trying to work on that. Okay. Okay. When it says he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Why is his ascension so important here? Here's the reason why. We actually find it already brought up in Ephesians. And, and again, remember this. Whenever the, whenever the church in Ephesus received this letter from Paul, and, and if Timothy was the guy that was there, John was the guy that was there, whoever was there at the time, he was like, okay, we're just going to read like the first couple of paragraphs, come back next week. They didn't do church like we do church. Okay. it was the idea we're going to sit down, we're going to read this whole thing. And they probably had some incredible discussion and they probably read his letter to the Ephesians over and over and over for weeks on end to talk about different points of it. But they were always getting the big idea. So chapter one, which is where we need to go, was not divorced from chapter four in their mind. It was all streamlined and connected and probably repeated often in that. So when we deal with this idea in chapter eight, therefore, it says when he ascended on high ascension, He led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Turn back to chapter 1 with me and let's see what happens. This is the first prayer that Paul brings forward. We're picking up in the middle of a sentence, but that's because we need to get to the heart of what's going on here. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 17. He's praying for these believers. This is a good prayer for us to pray for one another. And here's what he says. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Everybody remember when I made a big deal about this? It's all boiling down to the fact that when it's over, when it's said and done, God gets us fully. We are his inheritance. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be asking for a refund. But he's so excited about being with us because he looks past our faults and he sees us in Christ. And he says, I want them. Yes. When that moment comes, he's going to be so excited about the fact that nothing will ever separate us from his presence ever again. So this is everything that it's pushing for. But how do we get in position to be there in this situation with him to be his inheritance? Notice this. He also wants us to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us Believe, uh, who believe. Now notice, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us, that's us, who believe. Christians. These are in accordance with, in other words, think of it along these lines is what Paul is saying. With the working of the strength of his might, when he, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, everybody see that? Resurrection, resurrection, mark it. It's the same type of power that he wants to bring us to this understanding. It's resurrection power that Paul is asking that he exercises on us to bring us to knowledge of these deep and wonderful truths. He raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Ascension. It's this ascension power. What does it look like when he ascended on high? Right? He took the captives captive, yes. And he turned around and he gave gifts to the church. Why is that? Look what it says. Where did he go? Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, demonic rankings. This is the same thing we saw in chapter 3, verses 8, 9, and 10. Same thing. This ascension puts him above them. They're all now supposed to be in submission to him. He now is in a position of authority. And every name that is named, not only in this age, the church age, but also in the age to come. What is that? Kingdom. The kingdom is the next age. And He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. What in the world is this saying? It's saying that what God has decided to do is not just give us everything in Christ. Make the gospel available and when you believe, He brings you into this glorious location in Christ. But He heaps blessing upon blessing and not one person is lacking in spiritual blessing. And not only that, but He has seen in this perfect supernatural unity to also give you spiritual blessings and gifts where you are now in time so that they can be exercised. Why? He ascended in order to take all the spiritual evil hosts captive and turn around and give gifts to you as a result of his victory. And so what we're waiting now is yes, his return, the rapture, but we are to be living in the meantime as the church triumphant Why? Because we're cool? Because we have the best coffee in town? Because man, we really know how to welcome somebody or we have all the new mod colors going on? Mod, that's a 60s term. But anyway, is that the reason why? No, it has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with us just embracing all that Jesus has said and then living in light of that grace. Do you realize that you have a spiritual gift? You're cheating yourself by not knowing what it is and not using it to get involved in exercising it in the ministry of the body. Why? Because Jesus died to give it to you. He purchased it. He gave it to the Holy Spirit and said, here, you know who needs what. Give it to them. You guys realize I got a D in my English class where I had to give speeches? Why? Scared to death to get in front of people. Now I'm looking for every time to get an audience with you. I don't care. Why is that? Because I love you exactly. Because he's a narcissist, dear. No, I hope not. It's because when I heard the gospel and came in contact with the Savior, He implanted something in me that I never had before. He gave me two spiritual gifts, teaching and preaching in that order. And he said, use this for the body of Christ. And it took a while to come to that realization. Somebody else already knew that it was there. And that's usually how it goes in situations, and that's okay, because that's why we need one another to know that. But then utilizing that for the body of Christ. If I preach anything of flesh, you benefit nothing. But if I study and know the Word of God and then preach as such as to rely on the Spirit of God, then your heart cannot help to be pierced by the fact of the truth of Christ exalted. Period. And it's the same way. It doesn't matter if it's serving somebody. It doesn't matter if it's the idea of demonstrating hospitality. If you do it in the flesh, the glory is not given to anybody but you, and God never gives the glory. But here's the amazing thing. If you do it because of what God has done for you, reflecting on the fact of all that you have in Christ, you're now endowed to do this spiritually speaking. Then Christ can't help but to be glorified in you through the people around you. The Holy Spirit comes upon people and convicts them in that way brings to light sins that they need to deal with gives them understanding in the depths of the word of God that they've never had before because that's the church working spiritually and that's what this whole thing is about it's the whole fact of saying God is saying here's what I've done for you in Christ and I just want to take you so deep that you know all of this I want to take you deeper. I want to move you past what you think your boundaries are. I want to move you past your denominational preferences. I want to blow your mind that grace can go further than your sin could ever go. And I want to show you how much I love you and how much I desire to be demonstrated through you. Why? Because he says to us, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine. That's what he's doing here. Now you might say, man, it really took a long way to get there. Yes, but we have to deal with the text. We have to follow the text where it goes to understand what was he doing in Jesus when he ascended him. And why does Paul take the time to say, well, if he ascended, he had to descend, if he had to descend, he had to ascend, and here's the reason why he did it. Next week, we'll talk about what exactly those gifts look like, not spiritual gifts necessarily, but offices given to the church in order to supply them. But here's what I'm trying to get at. Guys, We're blessed. That's just a really plain way of saying something. Maybe we've abused the blessed thing too much. But recognize there will never be anything like the church in history ever. When the rapture happens, it all changes. The time we have now, use it well. The truths that you learn, especially prophetically, mark them in the front of your Bible. Some lost person after you're gone is gonna know when you need to know where to find that. You know, maybe even put a post-it note in case of rapture, look here first. Do that, right? That way they can go and not be confused on this whole thing. But recognize, we have a colossal opportunity right now. And if you look around, especially America, churches are wasting it on things that don't matter. They're wasting it. They're wasting the grace of God by not talking about the grace of God. They're wasting it by not exercising spiritual gifts. They're wasting it by exalting personalities and not the Savior. Does that make sense? I feel like I could keep going. Let me pray. We'll miss a Packer game if I keep going. Here we go. Lord Jesus, please bring us into greater understanding, revelation, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to understand these truths, these ascension truths, that you would give us wisdom and mercy in embracing your word and valuing it more than the things that we so hold dear, valuing it more than the music we listen to or more than the internet time that we spend valuing it more than facebook valuing it more than twitter valuing it more than news companies valuing it more than whatever we've been bought and sold and recognize that you desire to lead us into the greenest pastures we could ever have lord satisfy that longing in our soul please by your word and help us to recognize the beautiful and wonderful display of gifts that have been given to the body of christ never again to happen Only in this time now, please impress this upon our minds, convict our hearts. We pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Just real quick, as I sat down, I I realized something. Um, And I know you may say, good grief, why are you going on about this? Um, The idea of Jesus going down into the spirits in prison, preaching to them. When did that happen then? If it didn't happen at his death because he went up with the father, when did it happen? I believe it happened during the 40 days uh, between his resurrection Obviously, he was made alive, and it says in whom he went and preached. He went and preached after his resurrection and before his ascension. So for what that's worth, you can go back look at it. Maybe it's completely lost. I don't know. But I felt it was important because I didn't complete that part of it, and forgive me.